This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Friday, December 9th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It is said that you want to laugh as a child would laugh, dance as an innocent, love as a romantic, invest as a sage, and of course, caucus as an independent. Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema announcing she is leaving the Democratic Party and registering as an independent. Actually, the Arizona senator, who was the rightmost leaning member of the House of Representatives and then became the least likely to vote with the rest of the Democrats in the Senate, is likely undergoing a rebranding, but not a complete rebuild. So while this does remain an open question... Now, Cinema insists that nothing about her values or beliefs changes, that she'll continue to serve on committees, but she declined to say whether or not she will continue to caucus with Democrats. It is unlikely that Senator Cinema will turn her back on the party because that would risk her committee assignments and other perks of an affiliation with the party in power. Don't underestimate the lore of a nice office. The motivations of Kristen Cinema will be well examined. I would just caution you away from those explanations that lean on characterizing her as a traitor or a sellout. I'd lean into ones that emphasize her rational self-interest. I just want to take a minute, however, to talk about the three Senate independents and what those individuals have to say about the very nature and idea of independence as a coherent political force. You often hear Chris Cuomo these days, Andrew Yang, former New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman, defining themselves as independents and even arguing there can be a party or a movement of independence. We are left of the Republicans, right of the progressive branch of the Democrats. Yeah, but Tulsi Gabbard's an independent. Many libertarians when denied the label libertarian, default to, well, I guess I'm an independent. People are just uninterested in politics, like to call themselves an independent. And think about now who the three independents are in the Senate. You have Bernie Sanders, who has an ideology score calculated by GovTrack that puts him as the left most leaning member of the Senate. Kristen Sinema, who has an ideology score calculated by Progressive Punch that puts her as the rightmost leaning member of the Democratic Party when she was a member of that party. And you also have Angus King, who's closer to cinema, but also situated pretty squarely within the mainstream of the Democratic Party. My point is, whenever someone tells you they're an independent, it's not meaningless. It's just that it can mean so many different things. When someone tells you there needs to be a movement of independence, well, that's wishful or ignorant. Independents agree unless then they agree upon It's just that what they agree upon defines them that we're not one of you. On the show today, I'm going to help you through this whole Twitter files thing. Or maybe on the show today, it's the economy, stupid. Or maybe it's the stupid economy. But first, what is beauty? Sure, coming over the top with that big question. Well, to some, it's a new pair of Nikes or Taylor Swift or arguing about Taylor Swift or maybe the magic of Ryan Murphy and all his amazing work on Netflix that I, Mike Pesca, love. Philosopher Nick Riggle explores beauty in his new book, This Is Beauty. Nick Riggle exposes the truth 
including the fact that I just lied about Ryan Murphy, up next. Life is a series of obligations that we didn't ask for. Okay, that sounds bleak. Contrasted to life is a gift. That's why we call it the present. YOLO! Yay! Only life's not a gift, and we call it the present because of an etymological quirk. It's from the Latin phrase in re presente, in the situation in question. Now, if that didn't do it for you, that bit of Latin, I promise at the end of this interview, we will lay some Latin on you that will change your perception of the wisdom of a famous YOLO competitor phrase. But who is the we? Well, it is philosopher Nick Riggle. He is the author of the book, This Beauty, A Philosophy of Being Alive. He is a professor at the University of San Diego and author of the previous book on being awesome, a unified theory of how not to suck. Thanks for being on the gist, Nick. <laughs> no, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. So judging from your last book, which I heard about but haven't read, but looked at the title, okay, you know how to title books. Now, I read this book. <laughs> I read this book. And this book really isn't about this beauty. It's really about the question. It's all about the question. But if you name a book The Question, it sounds like a Moody Blues song and no one wants to wait in. <laughs> so what is yeah. The Question where I think this beauty is a version of the answer? But tell us The Question. The Question is, you know, the fact is you didn't consent to your life. You just were born. And no one had a chat with you before all of this to see if, you know, you wouldn't mind being this kind of like fleshy, you know, volatile, you know, uh, delicate thing on some random weird orb in space. Uh, and, you know, you just all of a sudden, like, you just kind of like wake up one day, you know, maybe you're six, maybe you're 13. And you just kind of realize like, huh, like I did not choose this. And, you know, normally when you don't choose to have something, you don't necessarily have to value it. I mean, if someone hands you something valuable, um, it's kind of up to you whether you want to, you know, have that in your life, incorporate that into the things that you care about. And so life is like this. You didn't choose it. Um, why, why care about it? That's the question. Yeah. So it's not a gift. It's an obligation, which sounds like a downer, although <laughs> yeah. I don't think it is. It doesn't have to be. I guess in 2022, we think about things like obligation a little bit differently than we did for most of human existence. And maybe that colors our perception of, you know, how much of a bummer it is if we think of life as an obligation. Yeah. I mean, I do struggle a bit as a philosopher with with the concept of obligation. Um it's an obligation in the sense that we're stuck with it, right? I mean, <laughs> you're just born and you're kind of stuck with it and you have you have to do something. And so that in that sense, there's some some obligation to figure it out. Like, what, what are you going to do? Um, are you going to value this thing? Obligation doesn't mean burden. It doesn't right. have to mean burden. No, absolutely. You're, you're totally right. And so I guess one version of the question is, you know, how do you make good by this sort of obligation? Like, how do you, how do you find comfort with it or, or be okay with it? Right. And so we'll get to this beauty, which I think is an answer, or at least uh, it represents the fact that there is an answer, even if you don't totally buy it. But yeah. tell me about obligations and what do you do with things you don't ask? Uh, maybe you should get into mayonnaise and beer at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, so yeah. So uh, in part of the book, I, I just, 
um, I think a bit, a bit about this, you know, like, what do you do with these things that, that you didn't necessarily, you know, ask for? So like, you, you might have a bunch of parties and, and you end up with straight stray beer in your fridge. And, you know, I live in San Diego, it's like the beer mecca of, you know, of craft beer uh, in the entire world. There's so much beer around. And so yeah, I end up with some sort of beer in my fridge. And you might think, well, do I have to drink this? Or can I just throw it out? And you might think, well, I don't have to do anything with it. It can just, I can do whatever I want. Um, there's no, you know, I can use the beer bottles for, for, for an art project or, you know, give, give, give them away to someone else. It doesn't really matter. And uh, the thought is life is a lot more like that than it is like, you know, the mayonnaise I bought, like I bought that. I want that. I want to use it. I love, I love mayonnaise. I'm going to, I'm going to probably eat, eat all of it. Um, but life seems a lot more like the beer than, than the mayonnaise. Yeah. I th- and I think Lou Reed once said life's like mayonnaise soda, which, I think it's a Zen cone. I'm not sure what, if, if he's anticipating your beer mayonnaise. I'm sure that exists. Like everything's on the internet. So I was also thinking that the reason it might be more like beer is that, you know, you could have some or have a half and not really feel guilty about it. With mayonnaise, you really almost always, it's like the one condiment. Yeah, you get all the squeezes out of the ketchup, but you really do scrape it with that knife and <laughs> just never want any of it to go. But on the other hand, maybe this is just getting lost in the analogy. On the other hand, beers can be different and beers can have variety and you could have a taste and it's certainly fine not to feel obligated to finish it. Whereas mayonnaise, especially if you bought it, you know what you're getting into and it's not really fungible and it's also undifferentiated. So I think th- I think that kind of does represent a couple different philosophies of life actually. <laughs> wow, you're taking this deeper than I than I realized it could go. I really appreciate. I that. out philosophy at the philosopher. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I make I make different kinds of mayonnaise. You know, if you use olive oil or um, avocado oil, or you know, you can you can put some tarragon in there or something. You can get fancy. So beauty or aesthetics, I guess, would be the branch of philosophy that answers the question of what is the point of life. Um, sketch out, if you will, your. I mean the. Book. It's not a thick book, but much of it depends on answering that question. Then I want to ask you some nuances about that. So the thought in the book, the sort of main, the main argument in the book is that loving beauty is a way of staying in touch with answers to the question. So the thought is, basically, I'm skeptical that you can give me a straight answer to the question that is just uncontroversially just like wham bam thank you very much i now have an answer to this deep existential problem um and the thought in the book is that one way to maintain a sense of sort of comfort in the light of the fact that the question just faces us during our entire existence is to love beauty because when you practice the love of beauty, the thought is, you engage in a practice that keeps you in touch with answers to the question. So for example, you know, you might be wondering why you should value this life that you were unwittingly given. And uh, then you just turn on, you know, your favorite album. And you think, yeah, this is all right. This is, you know, I can this like this music makes it okay. Or you sort of turn a corner and you see, you know, living in San Diego, you see the sort of vast Pacific Ocean um, sprawl out before you. You think, that's so beautiful. Like, I'm, I'm okay being here. This is, this is good. I accept this life, as it were. And so, you know, I think 
you know, aesthetics is such that, or, or aesthetic life is such that different people will find different answers to the question via their practices of, of valuing the aesthetic. Um, but yeah, but the general thought is that uh, it's a practice that's somewhat designed to, to offer these answers um, and yeah, to share them with one another. So someone who has a special appreciation for beauty, there's a word for this, and it doesn't always have the best connotation, an aesthete or aesthete, yeah, right. sometimes it's pronounced. So it sometimes has the connotation of, you know, someone who's an expert, but also a bit of a dilettante, a, a dandy, right? Yeah. I don't know if many of the people you grew up with doing uh, tricks on your skateboards were, <laughs> or, or blades yeah. would consider themselves a lover of beauty. So you do make the case that they are, and you don't have to get so high-minded about it. But what do you, since so much of the book is talking and breaking down phrases and what we mean by this, if beauty is the answer to the question of life, why do we denigrate those who appreciate beauty? Yeah, good. I mean, I think there's two there's two answers to this. One is that beauty is a little bit archaic as a term. I use it in the book. Uh, I'm pretty explicit about using it as a, a kind of literary or lyrical equivalent to the more academic term aesthetic value. And I think that term, you know, if you're familiar with it enough, it's it's broad. I mean, we think, you know, s- cool sneakers have aesthetic value, you know, dope headphones, um, great beats, you know, all kinds of things that aren't necessarily like beauty in a sort of foo-foo-y way, like whatever, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, those things are beautiful in this sort of lyrical sense. But the other thing is that one of the things that is a little trickier about the book is that um, it it might escape some readers, but you know, I am offering a really different way of thinking about aesthetic value in the book. And I think that we tend, like if you think of the esthete or the dandy, we tend to think of someone who's kind of a bit self-absorbed about, about aesthetic value. And it's all about kind of their own pleasure. Um, whereas my way of thinking about aesthetic value, it's, it's really a new theory of beauty that I'm publishing in, in academic journals and stuff like that. Um, and it's way more sort of community, I call it the communitarian theory of beauty, because um, it's all about, you know, this practice of imitation, sharing and self-expression and doing this in ways that create aesthetic community that connect us to other people who are also kind of in search of an answer to the question. Right. So the example you give of this is if you like Taylor Swift and we could stop there, that is your definition of beauty. But let's say someone who does it, if you engage in a conversation where you don't even convince the person, but you just engage the person, you know, doesn't her um, melodrama sometimes get to you? Yes. But I think what outweighs that is her sincerity. Then what you're saying is you've engaged in what's the term you use this communitarian uh, aesthetic? Yeah, there's a kind of aesthetic community. It's possible in my view. So a a lot of philosophers have thought that aesthetic discussions are about trying to get each other to have the same opinion about some aesthetic matter. So you, you, you know, you like Taylor Swift, I don't, or whatever, vice versa. And, um, and we just butt heads and it's like, you know, a lot of people would see that all those conversations as a kind of failure. In my view, maybe, maybe they, you know, some of them are failures, but it's possible for there to be a kind of aesthetic community, even when we totally disagree, as long as we can get to a place where you're like, oh, I get it. Like Nick is just like a Swifty. And that's like something kind of awesome about Nick. And, you know, Michael is not. And, you know, he has this really cutting and acerbic, like cool view. And even though I like Taylor Swift, you know, I can, you know, I don't have to have my kind of head up my ass about it. Like, you know, I can know, I know that Michael could be different. Um, As long as you have this kind of 
way of expressing your individuality about about the music. Um, and I can get to this kind of appreciative place, then yeah, we can, we can have this kind of aesthetic community even when we disagree. So I get how that works with Taylor Swift. I think, I don't know how familiar you are with the work of Ryan Murphy, who produces or directs every third Netflix show. I think he's the worst thing ever to happen to television. <laughs> and I can imagine that a Ryan Murphy fan and I can not even find common ground, but just have a really kind of in-depth conversation. And it might even have some animosity within that conversation, but you would define that as being part of, a com- of an aesthetic community. It's possible. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot depends on kind of the individualities that are expressed. I mean, if, you know, part of it's going to be like, you know, maybe after our Swift conversation, you know, I just want to know more about, like, I might even want to know, like, I'm so interested in your take that, like, I want to send you the new Swift album and, and like get your take, you know, I just want to know more about how you react to this thing. But in other conversations, I think, you know, that just that kind of like extra element of wanting to know more is not going to be possible. And they're just going to be a kind of aesthetic alienation. You know, I just think you're so far afield from what I'm into. Like, there's just no way we can, you know, the common ground is so thin, if, if, if even existent at all, that it's just not going to go anywhere. Well, but I, I definitely have had conversations talking about art or heard people make arguments that I totally disagree with, that I don't even know that they've changed my mind, but I really like the argument. Um, There is a podcaster, or he used to be a, a radio guy, Tom Sharpling, who just hates Kevin Smith, you know, the movies of <laughs> Kevin Smith. Yeah, of course. And I like the movies of yeah. Kevin Smith. I think that there are merits and demerits to them, but he you know, puts forward his view in such a clear, forceful, thought-provoking way, even though I've never talked to Tom about this, I think we have probably created an aesthetic community around that uh, question. Yeah, that's awesome. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, even think of like Siskel and Ebert from way, you know, from way back when. I mean, yes, they disagreed all the time, but like in this totally vibey, like, you know, respectful way that was generative, um, they didn't have the same view all the time. Sometimes they agreed, but even when they agreed, it wasn't always on the same grounds. So um, that's the kind of thing I'm, I'm thinking about. Yeah. So we're talking about things that I think the audience will uh, latch on to is absolutely being part of aesthetics, Taylor Swift, Kevin Smith. But you said earlier, it doesn't have to be these high-minded things. And I'll read the part of your book where you talk about what aesthetic value, things that might be in that category. Sneakers, design, decor, fashion, rap, literature, punk, adventure, play, the wild, the shocking, the challenging, dopeness, sleekness, silliness, and style. I like the list. You're good at lists. But (laughs) have you defined it so broadly, silliness, so or, or the challenging, that we can have any... Almost any interaction about anything defines or fits into a definition of aesthetic beauty. And therefore, your definition of what gives life value is basically everything. Yeah, there's a kind of subtlety in the view that um, doesn't come out very much in the book. The idea is that at the sort of core of this practice of aesthetic valuing is this possibility of, of trading, creating and sharing answers to the question that, that at its heart, that's what beauty is all about at its very core. But, you know, just like with any complex human practice, a lot of sort of filigreed elements can come off of that core and make possible a kind of aesthetic community. Even if, you know, okay, it's not like, you know, I'm really bummed out, like life has no meaning, what do I do? And, and you know, someone shows you their, you know, 86 Air Jordans and you're like, oh, it's all worth it. Um, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but, you know, the fact is, once this core is sort of settled and, and firm, 
you know, then, yeah, you know, maybe it, in my heart, you know, I have these like beautiful answers to the question embodied in Leonard Cohen's music and Schubert's 21st Piano Sonata and the, you know, Cohen brother films or whatever they are. Um, but then, you know, once I have that firmly in place, I can be like, yeah, those Air Jordans are sick. Like, um, let's let's put them on and, and, and you know, show show people this beauty, too. Um, so so I think, yeah, the idea is that at the core of the practice is this possibility of of answering the question and, and creating and sharing and, and imitating these these answers um, in the form of beauty, but that once that's settled, yeah, we can we can do lots of other things with the practice. So if this is an answer or the answer to the question, sort of, uh, what do I do with this life I didn't ask for? Are you saying if it is these transcendent moments or even normal moments that you find transcendences in, is your conception of the things that make life meaningful, are these relatively in the course of the day, brief epiphanies, you know, one or two, maybe if you're lucky, a couple times a day, you feel this and then you have to what, milk them for a while or the other 23 and a half hours or just getting to the next time you debate Kevin Smith or put on a pair of Air Jordans? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, this is a annoying philosopher answer, but like, yes and no. I mean, so I think that we can have these epiphanies. I've had them for sure. Um, and I think that they're important and significant and, you know, really, you know, you, you got to pay attention to them when they happen in your aesthetic life. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think the the answers to the question that are really, you know, I don't know, reliable and deep and significant are ones that sort of develop over time, you know, Um, like I call them in other publications of mine, aesthetic loves, you know, there's these, there's these loves that we all have in our aesthetic lives that are just kind of these unshakable foundations of the things that we find beautiful um, or more generally of aesthetic value. So for me, you know, I mentioned the, the songs of Leonard Cohen. I mean, that that is one of my aesthetic loves. Um, I love Radiohead when it comes, to, you know, when it comes to music. I like some classical music. Um, uh, food is huge for me. Um, and these are loves that are, you know, they're just these things that I return to time and again. And when I do, you know, just that special aesthetic thing happens um, almost every single time. And so um, I think the the... The answer really is, you know, at the core, there's these aesthetic loves. And I think throughout our lives, they can be, you know, our lives can be sprinkled throughout with these kind of epiphanies. But often, you know, what happens with those epiphanies, they're, the objects of the epiphanies become your become the objects of your aesthetic love. I mean, you know, you didn't know how beautiful Rome was until you went there and you're just like, oh my God, like, it's this whole thing. And I want to go back in time and time again. And it become or Mexico city or that's, that was my ro- most recent city aesthetic love was Mexico city. Just, you know, it, it was kind of this epiphany. It was like, I thought it was going to be good. It's better than I even thought. I, it's now just like a part of my life. I want to come back time and again. Nick Riggle is associate professor of philosophy at the university of San Diego. His latest book is this beauty of philosophy of being alive. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was great, great to talk to you.
And now the spiel, the Twitter files. It's the grandiose name given to an actually newsworthy series of revelations brought forward by Matt Taibbi and later Barry Weiss at the behest of Twitter management. I would bet that most people who are aware of these threaded info dumps see them as either an embarrassment for the journalists involved and maybe wouldn't even call those two journalists, or maybe they see them as an embarrassment for Twitter's old management. That is especially true if you believe that big tech conspired to swing the 20 2020 election. Maybe you didn't first see Matt Taibbi's thread. Maybe you first saw high-profile MSNBC journalists crapping all over Matt Taibbi's threads. Mehdi Hassan, imagine volunteering to do online PR work for the world's richest man on a Friday night in service of nakedly and cynically right-wing narratives and then pretending you're speaking truth to power. Chris Hayes said, watching some of the most famous, most powerful, and richest men red pill themselves into disaster pretty wild. And Ben Collins, MSNBC misinformation reporter, tweeted, imagine throwing it all away to do PR work for the richest person in the world. Humiliating shit. Well, those three men have a cumulative 4 million followers on Twitter. Matt Taibbi started last week with over 800,000. He's now closing in on 1.5 million. My reason for raising this point is to say that it's much more likely that news consumers, even all the curious open-minded ones, sorry, even both the curious open-minded ones, were first exposed to this story as a pre-discredited thing, or at least something that had been defecated upon by some of the biggest names in progressive media. And the conservatives were just as excited as the progressives were dismissive. Welcome back. More shocking details unveiled from the Twitter files. So I'm going to provide a service. I will explain the actual revelations involved free of clamor, hype, and dismissiveness. The real story, the more accurate and less exciting story, won't hit your dopamine circuits, but maybe will inform you. I don't know. I think it's very fair at the end. You're going to say of these next few minutes of the gist, was that really worth it? But here we go. Should be reported something like this. Top sources within Twitter today released screenshots and emails detailing the intense internal discussion around the October 2020 decision to significantly suppress a story in the New York Post regarding Hunter Biden and his laptop. The laptop, which has since been confirmed to have belonged to the current president's son, was left in a Delaware repair shop and then brought to the attention of the FBI. Since then, the exact contents of the laptop have not been revealed, but they are in possession of the Justice Department and investigators there have told the Washington Post and other outlets that they've gathered what they believe to be sufficient evidence to charge Hunter Biden with tax crimes and making a false statement related to a gun purchase. The U.S. Attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, will decide on whether to charge. This October 14th front page New York Post story was available on newsstands, it was available digitally, but Twitter blocked users from sharing it based on information that it might have been the result of a hack. When a Trump campaign staffer emailed Twitter for an explanation, Twitter public policy executive Carolyn Strom engaged fellow Twitter employee Elaine Ong Soto, who oversees security, and Ong Soto replied that it was a violation of the hacked materials policy. But soon, internal messages reveal that the report of a hack was not quite solid. 
Trenton Kennedy, who worked on Twitter's communications team at the time, raised an internal concern. Quote, I'm struggling to understand the policy basis for marking this as unsafe. And I think the best explainability argument for this externally would be that we're waiting to understand if this story is the result of hacked materials. We'll face hard questions on this if we don't have some kind of solid reasoning for marking the link unsafe. Soon Twitter's Deputy General Counsel Jim Baker weighed in. I support the conclusion that we need more facts to assess whether the materials were hacked. At this stage, however, it is reasonable for us to assume that they may have been and that caution is warranted. There are some facts that indicate that the materials may have been hacked. While there are others indicating that the computer was either abandoned and or the owner consented to allow the repair shop to access it for at least some purposes, we simply need more information. At one point, Twitter was fielding reports from Carl Sabo of the firm NetChoice, which is an organization that fights government, they'd say, over-regulation of the tech industry. Via Sabo's reports, some Republicans in the House of Representatives were angered that Twitter redirected traffic away from the Post. Some Democrats wanted more and more competent regulation so misinformation wouldn't spread. Against this backdrop and awareness of the political ramifications of what they were doing, a Democratic member of Congress, Progressive Ro Khanna, contacted Twitter's head of legal policy and trust, Vija Gatti, to say that suppressing the story seems, quote, a violation of the First Amendment. Gatti rejected that interpretation. Eventually, Twitter recognized that banning or suppressing the story was not a legitimate violation of their hacked materials policy. With the more direct intervention of CEO Jack Dorsey, the Post story was allowed to be shared on the site as freely as any other article from any newspaper available on newsstands everywhere. Subsequent research, by the way, showed that the two-day suppression, the story was suppressed from October 14th to 16th, and during that period of time, it drew more attention to the story than would have occurred otherwise. And in the days since this reporting began, one of the executives named has been fired. Jim Baker, the reasons aren't fully explained, but Matt Taibbi, who was chosen by current Twitter CEO Elon Musk to exclusively report the details that you just heard, Matt Taibbi called Baker a controversial and zealot-like figure. He also noted he came from a position of general counsel to the FBI. But Musk knew of Baker's background from the moment he announced his interest in buying Twitter and kept Baker employed up until last week when Taibbi's Twitter files broke. A subsequent series of reports has been tweeted by Barry Weiss, which sheds some light on some of the methods that Twitter used to filter certain users and posts. Critics call this shadow banning, and perhaps the most exciting thing I can report about it is that I shall not be reporting on it any further. We're going to end there. But if that's all you know about the Twitter files, maybe you actually knew a little more than some of the people who are paying the most attention and caring the most and staking their reputations and identities the most on the Twitter files. Just know I love and respect you, the GIST audience. There was, in fact, some interesting visibility into internal discussions within Twitter in Taibbi's Twitter files. And there was certainly a bit of overreacting and treating them like they were spun out of cozy bear whole cloth. At the same time, the original Taibbi framing, the context, the descriptions, ah, over the top. 
could have been expressed much more accurately. And also, instead of the Twitter files, could have just run as a regular report on a newspaper, say page A4, under the headline, Internal Communications Detail, Twitter Deliberations in Suppressing 2020 Story Subhead. At Twitter, caution gave way to doubt as a replay of the media's role in the 2016 election hung in the air. Yeah, I might not read that story either, but it would be accurate. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu, jeeperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>